Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivagant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. And on this episode, we are joined by award-winning author, new thought philosopher, and occult historian, Mitch Horowitz. Yes, we were. That was a lot of fun. It was... That was that was awesome. Yeah, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Mitch is a very personable guy. He's really fun to listen to, and he is very very knowledgeable about uh, these topics, specifically new thought. Yeah. Uh, and his tattoos were dope as fuck. I didn't even see them. I, the screen was too small for me. I, I I made it bigger on my screen just because I saw he had a bunch of tattoos, and I was just sitting there like, what are they? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, for our audience at home, just so you guys are aware, obviously you may be familiar with Mitch Horowitz if you listened to our most recent episode covering his book, Occult America. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the first book he ever published. Uh, what's important to note for this interview is that we're mostly talking about his newer book, uh, Daydream Believer, which is his newest in a line of sort of esoteric self-help books, mm-hmm. specifically focused on uh, new on what is it, new thought. New thought. Yeah, yeah. I almost I keep wanting to say real thought, and I don't no. know why. New thought. Uh, specifically focusing on new thought, which, if you'll remember from Occult America, is part of the mind power movement. It's the idea of visualizing your desires to manifest them in your reality around you. It, it formed the bedrock of the power of positive thinking of the yep. secret all those more modern uh, forays into new thought. And if I'm remembering correctly, we trashed it a little bit on the episode just because of what, how the people who uh, kind of almost corrupted it and took out the esoteric side of it. And it's almost like Mitch is trying to put it back in. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, I I mean, I I really enjoyed Daydream Believer. Anyone at home, you guys should get out and pick up the book. It's a lot of fun, especially if you like uh, kind of thinking about how our conception of reality affects our reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, a lot of really cool esoteric ideas. But uh, beyond that, I think we should just let everyone listen to this. Yeah, I'm ready to go. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's I'm do ready. it. Let's go. with Mitch Horowitz. Mitch, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So uh, launching right into it, our first question is one that we ask all our guests as we are a book club, uh, which is what are you currently reading and what sort of books do you tend to gravitate towards? My reading tastes tend to be very eclectic. Uh, Somebody might make reference to a book that just captures my attention, maybe for a certain errant reason, and I just go with it. For example, uh, right now I'm reading a biography of the journalist Hunter S. Thompson called High White Notes. And I suppose I was just attracted by the description of the book. It's about how Thompson kind of crafted a persona for himself, both as a journalist and as a cultural figure. I tend to be really eclectic and uh, driven by passions when I'm selecting a book. There'll just be an errant reference to something and I'll gravitate toward it. I'm reading Plutarch's biography of Julius Caesar, which I'm enjoying. Um, 
I just bought a biography of uh, Steve Jones, the guitarist for the Sex Pistols, called Lonely Boy, which I'm looking forward to reading. I found an anthology of writings about the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that was published in the late 1960s on a recent trip to Montreal. So I've been reading that. I'll just gravitate towards anything that I feel has a, a certain gem or kernel of, of, of interest that attracts me. Oh, interesting. I mean, geez, Plutarch's bio of Caesar. That's a, a, a real classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I discovered in, in that book uh, what I think is probably the antecedent of John Milton's famous line attributed to Satan in Paradise Lost, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Uh, Caesar and some of his lieutenants are crossing the Alps and they pass some uh, poor dilapidated village and his lieutenants start laughing and saying, hey, would this be uh, a place that you'd carry out your conquests? And he says to them with total seriousness, I would rather be first here than be second in Rome. And I think mm. that's probably the antecedent for Milton's famous quote. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Wow. All right. Well, that that's very, very cool. Uh, I've heard already a lot of books there that sound interesting to me. I might need to pick up. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I mean, Satan was in many ways kind of stitched together from like the old boogeyman of the Roman Empire of the Roman emperors. Yeah. Like Caligula, Nero and all of them kind of got sewed together into this one boogeyman that eventually after centuries and the transition to the Catholic Church did become Satan. So, yeah, it started as a well, it's an interesting question. You've raised an interesting question. Did Satan start as a conceptual idea within the Abrahamic religious traditions, just a general concept of adversity, or was there a kind of energy behind that, uh, which our ancient ancestors used to sometimes personify, uh, name in the form of gods seek petitionary relationships with. So that's an interesting question too there. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, and then we also have the connotations to pan and the satyrs and, uh, how those myths were Christianized and tried to, you know, demonize as, uh, I guess the, as cultural spread occurred. Now, moving into your work, uh, so in addition to Daydream Believer, we've also read Occult America, which was your first book. And before we get into Daydream Believer, we wanted to ask, in that book, you go over the history of the mind power movement of new thought and how it was later kind of watered down and stripped of its esoteric elements to become the bedrock of the modern self-help book industry, uh, thinking titles like The Power of Positive Thinking and The Secret. So we were curious, yep. what led you from doing research into new thought to writing your own self-help style books? And how would you characterize your approach as different from authors like Norman Peale or Rhonda Bryne? Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, when I, I wrapped up uh, Occult America, I was thinking, as authors often do, about what comes next. And I, I was struck repeatedly as I was researching that book that so much of esoteric spirituality, occultism, um, outsider spirituality really did come down to the contention that thoughts are causative. Some people would approach that point of view through spell work, uh, through all kinds of different revivalist esoteric practices, uh, ranging from things like uh, tarot to uh, retentions of witchcraft to new iterations of, let's say, astrology or, mm -hmm. or other arcane arts. But all seem to agree with the basic premise that that thought plays some concrete role in establishing one's reality. 
So that moved me to write my second book, which was one simple idea, History of the Positive Mind Movement. And then for my third book, which really addresses your question, I decided to take a big leap and I wrote The Miracle Club, which was my first book of self-help or practical philosophy, practical metaphysics. And I think what I'm trying to do in Daydream Believer is I'm really wrestling and, and, and trying to be deeply, deeply transparent with the reader about my own personal experiments in the field of mind metaphysics or what is sometimes called new thought. I, I don't subscribe to the blanket criticism of Norman Vincent Peale and Rhonda Byrne that you'll frequently hear in the media. Uh, uh, Peel, uh, I think, was a profoundly flawed, but also a great man in some ways. He helped, for example, destigmatize visiting a therapist. I mean, there are things that Peel did in the 1950s that I think deserve recognition, alongside uh, bigoted and terrible things that also deserve um, exposure. Mm-hmm. And 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 Byrne, Rhonda Byrne, the author creator of The Secret. I've been very, very critical of in print. Um, I've, I've, I have deep differences with Rhonda. I also celebrate the fact that she was able to adopt and see through a vision completely of her own volition. And she probably exposed a whole new generation to mind power ideas, which some critics see as a very negative thing. But I, I, I don't think she, I don't think her work, while I have deep differences with it, produced the degree of ruinous behavior that her critics seemed to forecast. There was one writer, gosh, I'm, I'm not quite remembering who, but there was one writer that made the case that the secret was uh, responsible for the 2008 uh, great recession, uh, the, the housing bubble crash, because everybody was exuberantly spending. I'm not quite sure that could be laid I, at the feet of Rhonda Byrne. I, um, I promise that there is so, there is so much that went into that, that that's, there's like maybe in the sense of like it, it helped or it inspired people to make choices that they made, but no, there's there's absolutely no way that you could correlate the the crash to that. Cause there, you can pinpoint the the events that led to it. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I mean, the deregulation that contributed to the crash began under the presidency of a very charming young man named Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these different um, 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 uh, complexities. Anyway, that is to say, um, I don't make a habit of using those guys or others as punching bags because I do think that they've had their accomplishments. But I also think that new thought culture, mind power culture has failed to grow up. It's done a much, much better job of popularizing than of refining itself. Mm-hmm. There's a childishness to it. There's a, a repetition to it. There's an absence of a theology of suffering. There's a unwillingness to, or an inadequacy to, uh, abil- uh, efforts to address worldwide suffering. I mean, the nation of Haiti right now is being torn apart by gang warfare. It's terrible mm-hmm. for the population. That is not the fault of the vibes of the Haitian citizens. That is the fault of like centuries of economic and social problems that we can point to. So I I feel like it's time to take off the kid gloves. And we, you know, as somebody who does believe in the validity of this philosophy, I also believe that we have to face individual suffering, worldwide suffering in a way that's, that's mature. And if this philosophy doesn't stand up to it, it has to be thrown out. And if it does stand up to these problems, then we have to figure out what's going on? If thoughts are causative, what other laws or forces are we living under that are also producing um, tragedies? Very interesting. Now, actually, we do have a couple of questions kind of along that line of thought. 
So a new thought as it's presented in Daydream Believer struck to me as, if you'll forgive the term, a type of magic that is free from the burdens of much of a, a much ceremony or restriction. It belongs to everyone. Now, with that in mind, what do you suspect happens when the inner passion-driven desire of an individual runs directly against the desires of another? For example, let's say Rory had a deep desire to rejuvenate a particular copse of trees, but I deeply desire to become fabulously wealthy on the logging rights. Right. I think that is a wonderful question. And I think we do live in friction. And I think part of creativity is friction. Um, I think there are probably a whole variety of ways in which people can succeed and function in this world without necessarily vanquishing another. But I can't escape the premise of your question, which is right. There are frictions in this world. And I do think that we as independent beings crisscross into one another's realities all the time. I deal with a lot of metaphysical possibilities in the book, primarily this very epic question of whether our psyches are unstuck in time and whether our psyches are able to migrate among different time zones and dimensional experiences. And and if one looks at certain aspects of where we've come to in the hard sciences today, that is not as far out a, a contention as it sounds on the surface. At the, so I think there's lots of possibilities uh, available to us. Um, in fact, one could even say infinite possibilities available to us. However, life is relationship. And, and I do believe that there results inevitable friction in life when people are at cross purposes, at least in terms of one's immediate experience. Interesting. Now, would that same, I guess, argument extend to a, a topic that you brought up in Occult America, the, the problem of evil uh, when it comes to new thought? Uh, specifically, like I was thinking, I mean, if you go beyond me going after logging rights aggressively. Think about, um, you know, serial killers. Think about people who are pretty much their only desire is to cause mayhem and destruction in the world. William Dudley Pe Pelly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, William yeah. Dudley Pelly, the founder of the so-called Silver Shirts here in America. He was, Pelly was really, truly America's first neo-Nazi leader, and he yep. was a dyed-in-the-wool occultist. Um, someone just sent me a big box of archival material of Pelly's pamphlets, and they're grotesque. I mean, you just got to wash your hands yeah. <laughs> after handling them. I imagine. Um, Jeez. Yeah, I feel fortunate to have the material for archival purposes, but I've got it stuffed, you know, somewhere in the closet with an air conditioner that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but the question of evil is a really interesting one, and and uh, it warrants definition, of course. I suppose I see evil as an absence of empathy, an absolute absence mm. of empathy, which is what allows a serial killer or someone like William Dudley Pelly, or quite frankly, even just a bully or a cruel person to get over on harming or hurting other people. I think that th this absence of, of empathy, it, it, it's obviously a universal problem. And if one takes seriously the mind power thesis, it only exaggerates, I, I don't mean that in a negative sense, it, 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 it inflates that problem. Um, it seems to me people get concerned, for example, about the mind power thesis saying, you know, well, what if this evil person uses it? What if this bad person uses it? What if Donald Trump uses it? Mm. And he 
attests to having been very influenced by Norman Peale's power right. of positive thinking as a kid. So yeah. that's not an abstract question. Um, what I would say is we as human beings are faced with ethical decisions all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. Um, do I take responsibility for something? Do I clean up a mess? Do I put somebody else's fingerprints on it? Do I, um, you know, pay this, 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 this dormant bill that nobody seems to be chasing me for, you know, I mean, so the question of mind power, if one takes it seriously, it, it just demonstrates the stakes, I think, that we face um, when facing questions of good and evil. And I, I like to bring questions of evil down to the everyday scale because, you know, of course, there's, you know, the famous Hitler equation on, online. And, uh, and the problem with the Hitler equation is most people, most of the time, do not confront questions of ultimate evil in their lives mm -hmm. you know they confront smaller questions right. of uh, paying back a debt you know what have you um but i, I, I suppose it, the mind power thesis just shows that these questions have maybe greater stakes than we might realize interesting well, it's almost like like i'm thinking about it it's like the the idea of mind power exists theoretically for everyone regardless of of anything else it's not limited to good people versus versus bad people in quotations, whatever. So it's like, well, if, if they're, if they're doing it, it's almost like, well, then I guess we have to, too, almost right. kind of counter the balance, so get, to speak, you know, get the mind power arithmetic working in your favor. Yeah. I think there's some truth to that. I yeah. really do. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you, you know, you're talking about, I guess, everyday evil. Uh, and it got me thinking, so how as mind power is open to quote unquote, everyone, how far does that extend specifically beyond the borders of our species? Because think about like in nature, we see, you know, the lion eats 20 gazelles in a year. That to the gazelle is an act of evil, to the lion is an act of good. So like do animals, uh, I guess that might be untestable, but do you think animals have a role in this? Do they have mind power as well? Do their wills shape their reality? Well, you know, I want to just say something, uh, interject a joke that, <laughs> uh, so I could d d divert myself from your very good question. <laughs> we'll come back to it, I promise. Okay. Um, years ago, um, the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen used to have a show called The Ali G Show, where it was a mock talk show, and he would have mm -hmm. people on and ask them painfully embarrassing or bizarre questions. And there's an absolutely outstanding progressive congressman today, who you guys, I'm sure, know, named Jamie Raskin from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I'm oh, yeah. Maryland, I beg your pardon. And Jamie's dad, uh, I had the good fortune to be acquainted with Marcus Raskin, who was a very interesting, wonderful man. And um, Marcus had the misfortune of being invited onto the Ali G show and not getting it. And Ali G uh, put the question to his panelists, should animals have the right to vote? And um, Marcus, to his credit, sat there silently with a kind of bemused grin on his face, whereas other analysts were trying to earnestly respond to the question. So... <laughs> I'm going to just sit here with a bemused grin on my face. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> no, I, I think, look, you know, um, the question of sentience is is a very interesting question, and 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 it's a very tough question, especially uh, I suppose you could say even on the other end of the scale, as we're grappling with issues of AI. Is there such thing as AI? What are we defined by intelligence? What are the standards for AI? And you're saying. If the lion kills the gazelle, the lion needs to kill the gazelle in order to eat to the gazelle. Uh, it's pretty hellish. Um, I would say I'm governed by this. Um, William James, uh, the American philosopher, made the observation in the late 19th, early 20th century 
if you knew how many uh, animals went to their death for the uplift of your existence, you would have a whole different valuation on your life. And I really try to remember that in all walks of life because we as human beings uh, not infrequently are in the role of of the lion. Uh, we consume voracious resources. And uh, even if we make an effort to live in a kind of low impact way, somewhere along the line, you know, I'm still throwing out my Mac computer with its battery leaking, you know, who mm -hmm. the fuck knows what into <laughs> yeah. somebody's ground soil. So, so the impact of our living do, does do what the lion does to the gazelle. And uh, I, I can't know exactly all the boundaries of sentience, but I do feel that I should be ashamed of myself if I complain because so many people and forms of life have suffered for the existence that I'm leading right now, sitting in a well-lit room, you know, able to use digital tech and, and so forth and so on. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good point. Cause like we are to the, we are the lion to the gazelle, but really it's like, we're the lion to the rest of the world. Well, and you know, I mean, even just thinking about the fact of when we were preparing our recording space down here, there were quite a bit of quite a few spiders down here. I couldn't escort them all outside. So they went into the vacuum cleaner and that I mean, <laughs> was that was an apocalypse as far as they're concerned. Right. Someone came down and wiped out their city. Yeah, a whole, uh, a whole like mythology will 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 grow around this in the uh, uh, arachnid world. You yeah, know? <laughs> they will. They and will, there was the day where the great darkness when, came upon us. When, <laughs> when, my, when so, my dad was in college, he was walking through campus with a roommate, and they saw an ant war. Like two war, two hills of ants had gone to war, and uh, my dad's roommate Ben took his coffee mug and poured it over the fighting oh. ants. And my dad's like, why the hell are you doing that? And Ben literally looked at him and said, because one ant army will emerge victorious and they will tell generations of their children of the great sky god who delivered <laughs> boiling oil upon right. the heads of their enemies. Right, 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 exactly. There's a whole, like, you know, there's an epic ant uh, yeah. <laughs> cosmological order now because of that. Yeah. <laughs> It's possible. God, it, it makes me wonder how much of our history is because some other intelligence spilled coffee on us. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, there is more accident in history than we would suppose. And one always has to remember that. I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think we as individuals, both on an intimate scale and on an epic scale, look backwards and we apply reasons to things that may have had no reason whatsoever. You know, you, you get some guy talking about his success and he'll give you this wonderful up by the bootstrap story. And it may be just because, you know, his adversary was late to the meeting or something. And so he, he got something the other guy didn't. A absolutely. That's so true. Like luck and accidents play such a big part in our everyday life in terms of being successful or not, or just anything like yeah you, like i i make jokes all the time about people failing upwards and it's like but it's true it happens it is all true. the time mm -hmm. it I, is true it is true I, and also extreme events happen all the time that have no precedent in history and then we scratch our heads and say well this doesn't add up and that doesn't add up and sometimes those are real valid questions but other times that's just what an unprecedented event looks like because mm -hmm. we just don't know what certain things are going to look like until they actually occur
Right. Absolutely. Now, so we're on this topic of, uh, I guess, uh, building these complex theologies. I want to now briefly talk about the one who may be spilling the coffee. In Daydream Believer, one of the ideas that resonated with us most strongly was your chapter exploring the power of prayer, uh, specifically because unlike many we've seen working in mind power topics, you leave room for the existence of greater intelligences, a.k.a. gods. Now, is the reader to understand that these ancient intelligences are something separate that predate humanity, or are they manifestations of collective mind power? Well, that's a wonderful question. I tend toward the former. I think that there are intelligences. I, I'll put it this way. My argument is that our ancient ancestors, who I think had a very, very deep knowledge and understanding of nature in the broadest sense, and this is true of every culture, literally from Polynesia to Siberia, they I identified what they believed were energies within nature, and they deified and personified these energies and sought relationships with them. That effort is a current part of my spiritual path, my spiritual outlook. It's an experiment. I think that human intellect is not the only game in town, and that's one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to things like law of attraction as it's traditionally enunciated uh, as being this one mental super law. Uh, that's why, even though I love some of the extreme philosophical idealists who maintain that all of reality is, is a product of, of intellect, and I think that may be true in some ultimate sense, I also believe that there are probably some kind of concentric circles or different sections, dimensions, locations on a vast network of undulating strings, however one wants to put it. I think there's other things going on within our, our, our cosmos, and that includes other intelligences, and I think we can seek relationships with them. Interesting. Uh, this is actually funny. On the topic of gods, I wanted to quickly bring up, you were, are you familiar with the concept of a synchronicity? Sure. Uh, you actually were involved in a synchronicity I experienced because when I was reading your book, I, I recently set up a tiny uh, little altar to the goddess Athena because I felt very drawn to Athena uh, since I visited Greece during my honeymoon. Well, uh, when I, I set that up, then I sat down and opened up uh, Daydream Believer, and it was right into the section where you're talking about your relation to the goddess Minerva, the Roman equivalent to Athena. Yeah, that's a trip. Yeah, that's, no, that's wild. I it, didn't know that. You didn't tell me. Yeah, that. I, I was waiting so you, I could see your face too yeah. on the episode live. Uh, that's <laughs> that, that's really cool. Yeah, that's uh, a trip. Yeah. Now calculate the odds of that. There's such and such number of pages in the book. You're thinking such and such billions of thoughts a yeah. day, and at this instant it meets up with that instant, and you have to crunch. You know, you almost have to create like uh, you know a multi-level equation to figure out the odds of that. Yeah, as, as soon as I read, it's that pretty wild. As soon as I read that section, I kind of side-eyed the Athena statue. Like, did you do this? Did you <laughs> right, do this right. to me? <laughs> she right. did. You know, she did. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, now, on the topic of other intelligences. Uh, this has to come up. I'm a bit of a UFO junkie, and I was very least. interested <laughs> in the section of your book where you discuss the UFO phenomenon in relation to mind power and string theory, uh, where you suggest that it's possible that UFO witnesses are seeing into some sort of parallel reality. Now, expanding on that conversation a little bit, do you think the same can be argued for other forms of paranormality, thinking things like ghosts, cryptids, animalistic spirits, and the like? I, I do. I do. Um and uh, I have a book coming out in October called Uncertain Places, where I developed that argument in an essay called Reclaiming the Damned that opens the book, where I 
posit the question of whether all this anomalous activity, ghosts, poltergeists, UFOs, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, you name it, Chupacabra, um, can be seen as some sort of extra dimensional wink. Is that possible? Now, that applies, I think, better to the UFO question than it does to the question of uh, cryptozoology, let's say. Uh, I'm... I like the approach of so-called Occam's razor, which is that the simplest answer that covers the most bases is likeliest to be right. And the UFO thesis can be boiled down to several possibilities, I think. The one possibility that's off the table right now is that it's just imaginary, that it's just... You know, some guy drinking moonshine who imagines he sees a fly. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I think that there's very, very, very few intellectual purveyors of that approach anymore. The idea of swamp gas, little green men, imaginary, Uncle Ralph was drunk. It's preposterous. You know, the evidence that we have is just too solid, too empirical. So is it earthbound technology? Uh, is, it, is it ET? Is it extra dimensional? The distances are so very, very vast that it's really hard to come up with a theory uh, of ET visitations, although there are cosmic wormholes and other models of reality that could approach that. We've done better, it seems to me, with our models of reality, which are still just models, just conceptual, um, like string theory. I think we've done better with that as a species at this point than we have with the cosmic wormholes theory. So I lean towards that with regard to UFOs. As far as this, uh, these other phenomena, I, I think they're so widely reported. There's been so much testimony that we have a record. They can't be swept away. And then again, we're faced with this question of how. And according to our current models, extra dimensional, as extreme as that might sound, but we have been brought there by a lot of different sciences involving replicable observation, including quantum mechanics. The interpretations of some of these things, I think, are reasonably persuasive. And I think warrant a, a look with respect to far out phenomena. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that because th- th- there was a recent uh, paleontological discovery that demonstrated that a Loch Ness-like creature um, may have existed at the time of, of the dinosaurs and, 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 and may have been able to exist in a freshwater environment, uh, unlike most of the dinosaurs. And so, could there have been a giant carryover lizard that existed in a freshwater environment in Loch Ness? So, you know, some of these things could also be absolutely literal and biological. Absolutely. Oh, uh, and, and, you know, it could be, I mean, we tend to go with the uh, kitchen sink hypothesis. It's a little of everything. Because, uh, you know, you, you yeah. look at, like, say, the coelacanth. Well, that is was for a long time a feature of cryptozoology, but it is just a fish, ultimately. Yes. Yeah, there could be any number of things going on. And who's to say that that UFOs aren't several different phenomena. Maybe mm-hmm. some of it is earthbound and it's unknown tech right now or secret tech. Maybe some of it is ET. Maybe some of it is extra dimensional. Maybe some of it is Uncle Ralph being drunk. You know, there's all these <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the things I have to be careful of and that I criticize in the book is in our culture, we tend to think in terms of a magic bullet answer. There's got to be one thing. And we discover that one thing or we gain evidence for that one thing, and we think, well, case closed, that's what's going on. But of course, there could be a, a vast complexity of things going on. 
Yeah, it's almost never just one thing, it feels like. Yeah, yeah and if a book we read recently is any indicator, sometimes the UFOs are piloted by Sasquatch, which is <laughs> right, a wild exactly. image. Yeah. That's Hockham's <laughs> Razor. I like that reasoning. Yeah. Um, and also, we have to remember that with our own personal problems and our intimate problems, we tend to think in terms of a magic bullet. And sometimes there is one. But I often say to people, a problem very often is caused by a complexity of factors, so it has a complexity of solutions. So we don't have to get hung up with like, oh, this event or that event was the antecedent to all the reasons why I do X. You may have 10 different reasons for doing X, some of which may be good reasons. And I just think we have to give ourselves a break from always searching for that magic bullet. Interesting. Now, I, I am curious, and uh, obviously no is a perfectly acceptable answer. Uh, but on the topic of these other kind of paranormal occurrences, have you had anything that you would classify as a paranormal experience? I don't really think I have. I, I mean, I've had some interesting experiences connected to meditation and mind power. Um, I don't know that I've had a flat out haunted house UFO ghost story experience. I, I have not had one myself um, that that. M makes for you know must telling you know just yeah. little weird winks here and there but no no big story all right well that's fair enough all right so moving into our next question here um throughout daydream believer you advocate for people to come to an honest understanding about their desires in order to distill them to their core elements as a focus for one's mind power in other words actively using mind power with that in mind i was curious is passive mind power a thing like, if someone doesn't direct their desire through active work, will their passive desire still manifest in the world around them? I believe so, because I think that I speak in terms of the psyche, which I see as a compact of thought and emotion. And I think the directions our emotions go in are very powerful. And I ask people to get in touch with their emotions, get in touch with what they really want, because I think emotions really rule the game. Emotions are more powerful than thought. And... If emotions weren't more powerful than thought, then thought alone would be enough, say, to keep us from unwanted emotional outbursts. But we all suffer unwanted emotional outbursts. Um, and we all suffer various forms of addictions and things like that. And thought is not strong enough to just say, well, stop that. So I think um, I, I might not describe it as passive, but I would say get get, get a get a grip. Uh, get a get a really good insight on where your emotions are, because where your emotions are would probably tend to be a pretty good marker of where you're going. That's funny. That actually plays ironically, I guess, into I was I you know I you know I I work at a, a nine to five, so to speak, a, a day job, and uh, just what was it Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesdays. Uh, I had like a really crappy day at work. And, uh, I was, you know, I, I do, I have, uh, Ohm, the like druidry, uh, uh, runes made out of <clears throat> all the different trees and stuff. And I was <clears throat> like, I'm just going to pull a rune. I'm going to see what they're, what they're telling me about, uh, about the day. And my, my thought, my intention was what, what should I take away from this, from this day, like this awful day at work that I had. And the rune that came back was just telling me, like, you need to control your emotions a little bit better. <laughs> and I'm just like, huh. Yeah, I didn't think about, the, like, I was all, you know, I'm sitting there going, yeah, like, it was this person's fault or this person's fault for making everything, ha like, everything happen. It's like, or maybe you could just not be mad about the things that are outside of your control. Yes. You know? Yes. 
And I, I that what you said just made me think of that that exact same thing. And it's like, well, mm. my runes are telling me this exact same thing too. That's funny. Yeah, uh, Carl Jung used to work extensively with the uh, ancient Chinese oracle called the I Ching. And uh, the I Ching, like the runes, are kind of an, a very ancient alphabet. And he said that he came to feel, and other people have made this observation too, maybe Richard Wilhelm, that the I Ching almost had a personality of its own. Mm-hmm. He would ask a certain question, as you did, and rather than the oracle responding specifically to the question, it would challenge him, and he felt it almost even had a sense of humor to it. That yep. was that was his recollection. Yeah. No, I I I think that too. Like even like tarot, I I feel like tarot develop a personality of their own. Like all of it. Yeah. Yes. All right. So uh, now moving into that, I mean, we're talking about tarot and uh, those sorts of things. Another, I mean, guys, tangentially related field is obviously parapsychology. We talk a lot about the power of the mind there. And in uh, one of my favorite chapters in your book was the psycholo- uh, parapsychological revolution, where you go over a huge breakdown of the trials that the field has faced in obtaining mainstream acceptance. Now, looking to our modern world today, do you see any evidence that the tides are changing in regard to the stigmatization of parapsychological research? Um, I appreciate that question. That chapter was hugely important to me. It's possible that the mainstreaming of the UFO question will assist with a revisitation of academic parapsychology research. Um, In particular, in that chapter, I read about the precognition experiments of the clinical psychologist uh, Daryl Bem, which he conducted at Cornell University over the course of about 10 years, published his paper in 2011. And I hasten to point out that his paper has been validated by a meta-analysis that was updated most recently, July of 2020. So this research is going on. It is going on on a serious scale. It's very, very difficult for it to get a hearing. It's very, very difficult for me to find reasonable skeptics to debate with. I, I want to find good skeptics to debate with. And I find that the positions are so hardened, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult to have a constructive dialogue. I mean, you, you find a guy like Steven Pinker at Harvard who doesn't even know the data, who dismisses it with t- terms like flapdoodle and things like that. And I, I recognize how tempting that is, um, but it's really difficult to find well-read skeptics who are prepared to approach this material and approach it in a way in which they're, they're not going to flip over the chessboard if the debate starts to go against them. That's the huge, huge problem facing parapsychology research. There's replicable evidence there, and it's good evidence. And I would like to debate with a skeptic who comes to me and says, um, granted, you know, there's good evidence there, but you have not accounted for the possibility of fraud, which could wipe out some of this good evidence that you're referring to. You have not grappled with the fact that the laboratory evidence that you're dealing with is on very, very slender statistical grounds, and that's true too. And you have not grappled with the fact that meta-analyses themselves are are questionable because you're dealing with, a, a, again, it, 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 sometimes very slender factors of statistical evidence, to put it in, in the plainest of terms. And maybe, maybe the whole meta-analytic an, model is flawed. Uh, maybe there are flaws in the social sciences that apply to parapsychology. These are good questions and important questions. And yet, I will always, almost always find 
skeptics who start from the position that Pinker does of just absolutely dismissing the evidence as if there's you know nothing there and they're wrong. They're just simply wrong. Um, so that's a bit tangential to your question. Um, and I suppose that the challenge facing parapsychology and the, the, the reason why there's a paucity of good critique as opposed to just a kind of broad uh, sweeping uh, dis dismissal in some quarters um, stems from the fact that critics who seem to viscerally react against this research for various reasons fear that even a balanced uh, debate serves a validating function. And they are so dedicated to dismissing this material because this material really does upend our materialist assumptions, mater philosophically materialist assumptions, which is that life is just the result of chemical processes uh, uh, and, 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 and our psyches, our minds, our brains are nothing more than bubbles in a glass of carbonated water. When the water is gone, the bubbles are gone and that's it. And the, it, it, if one honors the questions of parapsychology of ESP research specifically, it brings us to the threshold of the ineffable. It brings us to the question of non-local intelligence. And once you start talking about non-local intelligence, you're talking about a world that goes beyond flesh, bone, and five sensory motor skills and, and so forth. And they are profoundly concerned about that. So they avoid, by they, I mean the a, a kind of professional class of skeptics, they avoid even constructive debate on the matter, which they feel will serve a validating purpose. So that's tough to overcome. It may require another generation where our intellectual culture sort of shifts and the, uh, the debate is no longer seen as existent among people like me or, or researchers uh, that I write about in the book versus people like you know, professional skeptics. It may be that the, the ground of the debate needs to shift uh, before parapsychology can get a, a authentic second look. But who knows, with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis, maybe that will occur in our generation. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't think about it until you said it, but since this kind of disclosure age has started up with the UFO stuff, I have seen, obviously, I'm getting a very uh, insular view in a very uh, narrow bubble of the opinions of the, of the people, mostly just through Reddit and social media, but I'm seeing a lot more people talking about things like Project Stargate and things like the Gansfeld experiments. So that is a yes. good point. I mean, even if it doesn't convince the scientists, having more just people out there who consider that this might be a thing might eventually down the line lead to more scientific uh, research. Absolutely. And uh, the physicist Max Planck made the observation that scientific theories do not prevail because the critics are persuaded. They prevail because one generation dies <laughs> and another generation comes to of age unfamiliar with all the problems and the complaining and, yeah. and tends to accept it. You know? Yeah, I was I was raised in the new in the new atheist movement in the, the late I, the late uh, 90s through like the 2010s. Mm -hmm. And uh most of the other kids I know that grew up in that community have also fled screaming from it. And not even just because of the the harsh skepticism. There's a lot of issues attached with that community, like prioritizing intelligence over compassion, even mm. to the point of sacrificing imagination. And also the new atheist movement was intensely racist and intensely right. misogynistic. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> it was it was like ninety five percent white and um women occupied it, it it all of this stuff was very covert and like I'm assigned female at birth so I have kind of an insider view on that there were it. There were expectations about how you were supposed to behave if you were a chick hanging around in those communities. No kidding. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The, the the that movement has always struck me as a very triumphalist movement. Uh, you know, almost like a kind of secular manifest destiny. No, they were yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They were. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. That was actually one of the reasons why my parents, at when I, when me and my sister were like teenagers, started going like, you know what? Let's let's just pull back from this because they they were watching how like female skeptic celebrities were getting treated. Like anytime they stepped outside of those rigid roles and regulations, and my dad just started going, nope, no, 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 no. I pulled my kids out of the church because of this exact reason. No. You know, it's interesting. I've always wondered with that movement, and and this is a general observation on human nature, because all of our movements uh, tend to become their opposite. So you tend to, I suppose, at, at its heart, the new atheist movement sees itself as an avatar of rationalism. And now years ago, I wrote an article about violence being perpetrated against accused witches today. And that article was re, uh, Richard Dawkins reprinted that article on his website. And I was very happy for him to reprint it. It's a big social problem that I care about. Now he's reprinting it because he thinks, ah, you know, here's another piece of, here's another exhibit of how religion brutalizes people. In this case, you know, these primitive carryovers believing in witchcraft and such, which was never my point, but that was his point. So he found the article useful. And then I look at the work of a guy like this and he has recreated every bit of the fundamentalist, orthodox, um, aggressive tone, language, outlook of the harshest forms of religion that you could possibly ask for. And I think to myself, intellectually, Dawkins must understand that there is such thing as contemplative religion. Uh, somebody sitting on a pillow in Zen meditation is not pausing a threat to anybody. Yeah. This is not a movement on the march, you know, that's going to invade your town or something. And, and, and yet you see no vestige of that in his work. And I, I'm not singling out him. I could pick out any number of people and you find that again and again. What is our addiction to this tone of I'm right, you're wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Like, why, why, why do we all? Why is it that I have to be right? Why can't? Why can't we all be right in in, in some way, shape, or form in our own little bubble universes? Yeah. <laughs> well, just you know, it strikes me that you know it ain't tough to draw a line between, say, Orthodox religion versus contemplative religion, or congregational religion versus some you know Henry David Thoreau. You know, this yeah. is not difficult, and yet our organizations seem unable to do it. Interesting. Now, continuing along that thought, is there any current work in the parapsychological field that you feel more people should be aware of, things that are going on right now? Well, I was referencing Daryl Bem. Uh, I write extensively about his precognition experiments in Daydream Believer. I would say uh, uh, that's it, it's not super recent in that his paper came out in 2011, but his paper has been updated. It has been meta-analyzed as, as most recently updated July of 2020, so pretty recently. I really want people to look at those experiments because those experiments present us with some just extraordinary data. And 
the rap on parapsychology is that it's not replicable. And that's not true. Uh, his experiments were replicated in a meta-analysis that encompassed, uh, dig this, um, 90 experiments in 33 different labs in 14 different nations. Oh, wow. I'd say that's pretty damn good, you know, replicability. <laughs> yeah. Not all those experiments succeeded, but meta-analyzed, they reproduced the same result that he found, more or less, in his original paper. And that's the gold standard that we look for. Now, a critic could come along and say, well, that's a good reason why we should reconsider meta-analyses and whether our statistical models are working. And that's a, that's a fair conversation to have. But no one's had that conversation without impugning his data as being polluted. And there's no evidence whatsoever of pollution in his data. So I guess that's the area that I'd like people to really check out. You know, it, it's interesting. So um, we read who wrote Twin Telepathy? Guy L. Playfair. Yeah, we, we read Guy L. Playfair's Twin Telepathy. And in that, he talks about an interaction that was had between some parapsychological researchers and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Mm -hmm. uh, where it got to a point where uh, basically they had a lot of research. They were trying to get peer reviewed and there was some sort of challenge going on where it was like, if you produce the data, we will try to replicate it and then we'll publish the results. And they replicated the re this guy's research and uh, they, they did replicate the results. They found that he had done it correctly and they refused to publish that result. And, yes. the, and the actual quote was, well, we can't let the mystics have a win. So I, part of me does wonder how much of it is that what you're talking about earlier, that kind of sort of instinctual rejection of something that challenges your worldview and how much of it, it has gone for some of these people towards more intentional, willful acts of sabotage. Yeah. I, I really am very concerned about that. Uh, I wrote a obituary, I suppose, of the uh, famous skeptic uh, James Randi a couple of years ago. And I compared uh, James Randi to um, Senator Joseph McCarthy. And I realized <laughs> that there's a there's a better comparison. And that better comparison is Roger Stone. He was a dirty tricks specialist, essentially. I'm not saying that Randi didn't catch a couple of bad guys over the course of his career, particularly early on when he was going after phony faith healers and people like that. And certainly he looped some people into his web who may have been self-deluded about their own psychical abilities, but the manner in which he attacked legitimate academically based parapsychological research, it, it, a better comparison is, is, is Roger Stone, almost like a dirty trickster. And the uh, prevailing skeptics today, they are, frankly, they're, they're kind of like um, uh, opinion hosts on Fox News. There's just absolutely nothing you can say to break through uh, to these guys and, and, and have a legitimate debate. And I, I wonder at that. You know, I, I often wonder at that. What are the stakes? What do they want? You know, sometimes I, I feel this when I'm looking at the far right, for example. I'm asking myself, what what does Laura Ingraham want? What is it that we're not doing that she would like us to do? You know, and of course I could check some boxes. I mean, I'm not I'm not posing that in a completely rhetorical way, but there's a certain point at which I really can't figure out what precisely uh, uh, this cohort wants, and I can't figure out what precisely the skeptics want. I can figure out that uh, I understand. I'm not so temperamentally different from them that I can't understand that they are concerned about a wave of irrationality sweeping our world. Uh, obviously, we're doing a pretty bad job of 
holding off that wave. Yeah. But, um, but, but, you know, way to go, guys. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe you should be more concerned about QAnon than J.B. Ryan and his card experiments. But, right. You know, it's like you've gone after J.B. Ryan and his card experiments. OK, but. They are concerned about a wave of irrationality sweeping our world, and that instills fear in them. And I understand that. I'm not a stranger to fear. There's things I'm afraid of in our political order, in our political world. I get it. But there's a, I guess one of the things that troubles me is just the utter lack of integrity, the utter lack of integrity. I do not want to flip the chessboard over if I'm, if I'm losing. I'd rather not have to boil everything down to the paradigm of a debate or a chess game Um and there's a lot of room for exchange, a lot of room for exchange. And I've tried to reach out to some of these guys and, and, and the, 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 how can I put it? The, the quality of the exchange is, is very short lived. Like I was having a debate with a anthropology professor about the Gansfeld experiments. And he said to me at a certain point, and for any of your listeners who haven't heard of them, these are experiments into telepathy that involve sensory deprivation. Very, very compelling data. And he said to me at a certain point, yes, the Gansfeld experiments are, remarkable. And I was like, okay, you know, that's all we have to agree upon is that, that there's a body of data there that's unpolluted, that warrants further inquiry. You don't have to agree with the ESP thesis. I don't have to, you know, uh, we don't have to go any further than that. And the very next day he reversed himself. You know, the very next day he made some sweeping dismissal. And I thought to myself, there's just no debate here. Uh, you know, this is a airsats debate. And I, I feel that the skeptics, and I write about this in the chapter on parapsychology in the book, they are suffering a positive integrity. I mean, they have um, identified as their cause the defense of rationality and scientific integrity, which they are pursuing uh, by means that are very often uh, themselves uh, ethically compromised or corrupt. Apropos of what you were just describing with the Committee on Scientific Skeptical Inquiry, they've done the same thing uh, in the 1970s, apropos of uh, an astrology study, which turned up results that weren't supposed to be there, and they didn't publish it. It resulted in the sociologist Marcello Truzzi, a brilliant skeptic, who identified himself as a constructive skeptic, leaving the organization. And uh, how do you defend uh rationality using deceptive methods. It's hard to imagine um, stranger ethical pretzel. Because the new atheist movement, a lot of the skeptic movements have turned have turned it into a moral question, not a question of finding the truth. They legitimately believe, many of them, that believing in these things at all is inherently immoral. Fascinating. And why? Why do they consider it immoral? Um, they think it robs people of their ability to make rational choices. And you have to understand the majority of new atheists, the majority of the people that I grew up around in that community were deeply traumatized by American Christianity to the point where they, they were legitimately just triggered by religion. Like many of them had experiences of like, you know, watching their siblings die because their parents were Christian scientists and wouldn't take them to the doctor. So they do on some level believe that it's like to believe in these things at all is a slippery slope that will rob you of your free will and your ability to make your own independent moral choices. Religion must be destroyed for the good of mankind. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's the, the, like the whole, this whole thing, like kind of ma makes me think back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. It's like the idea of just having to win. It's like in human nature and it feels like, 
a lot of times the the people that are opposed to like parapsychological research and all of that, it's like they don't they're not actually interested in learning the data because they don't think that there ever will be any data that's good enough. So it's just about shutting it down and and winning at that point. That's it. There's they're not actually interested in trying to grow or be better or learn about any of this information. There's no, yes. point, there's no point in looking because there can't possibly be anything there. Exactly. They've convinced themselves that, that because we think that there might be, a, that there maybe might be something, uh, you know, here, not saying that there is, we're saying maybe, and this evidence is very convincing. And they're like, no, it can't possibly be convincing. And I don't even want to look at it. Right, right. That's that's Pinker's argument that I don't even look at the evidence because it's so contrary to commonly observed reality that it doesn't it doesn't warrant looking at almost as if you maintained a pig is flying or something. And and um, I, I guess I have to ask myself the question and I hope I'm haunted by the question if I'm not already of what if I'm wrong? You know, what if the uh, the the pickings of of parapsychology after eighty years, uh, hundred years, or uh, academic parapsychology, are 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 sufficiently slim enough so that they could be explained away by errant fraud, uh, which I don't think a, a, a lot of which occurs in the field. Uh, in fact, I think the field is is populated by quite sterling people. But I'm already um, diluting my question to myself, which is, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? And I I, I I am concerned about whether I'm sufficiently haunted by that question. I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about the mind power thesis. I could be wrong about the ESP thesis. And uh, I hope uh, I would be willing to come to terms with that if somebody presented me with, with evidence that, that led in that direction. Absolutely. I, we often uh, discuss kind of the need, especially not just in regards to mind power, but I mean, we talk about a giant gambit of very strange paranormal concepts and things like that uh, to hold how important it is to hold your beliefs lightly, to be able to adjust and adapt as new things come to light. All right. Now, thank you for that answer. Uh, we do have two more questions. We're running up on time, so I want to make sure we get to these. Our, our next one uh, is very hypothetical. So let's say that the new thought movement experiences a huge renaissance and it becomes so widely adopted, it's nearly ubiquitous in society. In that scenario, what do you think the world looks like? What benefits would it have for us as a species and what dangers? That's fascinating. I suppose, well, given my assessment of human nature, I have very little faith in human nature, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> um, Fair. I, I never understand these people to say, I'm, yes, I'm hopeful about tomorrow. Um, <laughs> once the... Uh, once the philosopher Jacob Needleman, who's been an influence on me, was being interviewed by uh, somebody of a spiritual bent, and he said, are you hopeful about the future? And Jerry said, no, I'm not hopeful. I see no reason to be hopeful. And I thought, yes, right on, because <laughs> I know the guy was leading him towards an expected answer that would neatly wrap up their interview. Um, I think, look, uh, the overwhelming likelihood is if the New Thought thesis went very mainstream, um, we as a human species would probably do a, a damn well a lot of what we're already doing, you know, making warfare, being sarcastic, asking rhetorical questions over Twitter, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and and probably, as is the case now, there would be a fraction of people who uh, were more sensitive, more searching, more reaching, who sought to experiment with and use this thesis in more refined ways. It might produce uh, individuals who have greater dimensions to their lives from all walks of life, which is one of the things I, I love about 
the mind power thesis. It, it is available as an experiment to people from every walk of life, which is why I'm so turned on by it. You don't have to join anything. You don't have to put a label on yourself. It's private. It's not congregational. And so I'd like to think it would bring opportunities to some sensitive people. Uh, I really do believe it would. But we as a human species, I think, would march on to whatever it is we're presently doing, you know, to be honest. That's understandable. I, I Part of the reason I asked that question, I, are you uh, familiar with the transcendental meditation experiments? I, I don't remember which university ran oh, sure. them, but they trained oh, yeah. like 1% of a population of a city in transcendental meditation and had them meditate towards peace and crime rates dropped. Yes. And there have, that's sometimes referred to... Uh, colloquially as the Maharishi effect. And uh, th those papers have been published in ju jury journals. I think they're, 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 they're literature that conforms to the standards of the social sciences field. And they have demonstrated drops of crime and other maladies in certain localities where uh, a critical number of people are meditating. I, I was talking about this with a friend one night who studied meditation directly with the Maharishi. And we were discussing um, a couple of articles that had appeared in the New Yorker uh, recent to the time, a dumping on the reputation of Henry David Thoreau, of whom I'm an admirer. And we talked talk about Thoreau, we were talking about the Maharishi, and he said, well, look, if they were wrong, we're all in a lot of trouble. And I was like, yeah, granted, I'll take it, yeah. Uh, very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, which moves us into our last question here, and this one should be the easiest. What's next for Mitch Horowitz, and where can people find your work? Uh, well, um, the best way to find me is on social media. I'm on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz. I'm on Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. Website is MitchHorowitz.com. A new book is Daydream Believer, which I'm very proud of. And that's available everywhere uh, in every format, um, audio, digital, paperback, hardback. Um, next up, I am writing a new book called Modern Occultism, which is a history of modern occultism. And when I say modern I mean, really post-ancient, going back from the Renaissance era uh, to the present. And uh, it's more a history of ideas than it is of personalities and movements. But I'm going to be working on that probably beginning sometime in the next few weeks. Very, That's, very cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we look forward to it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, that runs us up on time. Thank you so much, Mitch. We had a blast talking to you. We hope you did, too. I did. You guys, I have to say a word of tribute to you. I do a lot of podcasts. Your questions were so well prepared, oh, so well you. framed. Uh, I really super enjoyed this. Well, you guys you. are terrific. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, that's it. Uh, so good night, Mitch. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Take a walk with us.